This episode took a while to come out because of next week's episode, which is about MS awareness and my 90-year-old Nana. She's the cutest person I've ever met and probably the first person I've ever met. Since I don't love doing introductions to episodes, I've decided to have a good friend or the person who introduced me to the guest do an intro. Here you'll hear Dominic Damaski, who was my 32nd episode on the podcast. In just a moment, you'll hear Dom enthusiastically introduce one of his best friends. Hey there, this is Ben Currier, self-proclaimed world's number one failure. In this podcast, we'll learn about the hardest moments my guests faced and the failures they endured on their path towards making it. I hope you enjoy. On this episode of the Failure Guide podcast, we are going to meet digital marketing guru, Tom Langan, owner and founder of Talex Media. He's a giver and an influencer. He is an absolute thought leader. He wants to help others. He's the founder of Legendeering, a process that is going to change marketing. This is the Failure Guy podcast, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey there, friends of failure, and welcome to this week's episode of the Failure Guy podcast. I'm here today with Tom Langan. Hey, Tom, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm appreciative of you, and I'm, I also know that we've missed the first meeting and I've wasted a bit of your time here, so I'm happy that you're uh, so flexible. To start off, for the listeners, can you give us a little bit of just not only your background, but some of your, uh, I call it a shameless brag or self-promotion where you can pump yourself up. So then we start talking about those more difficult moments. It's less, uh, it's less biting. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. So, yeah, so I, uh, my background's in, um, uh, the entertainment business. That's sort of how I came up. I own a production company now. Started out working in television and commercial production in the entertainment industry in 2001. And, uh, right out of college, I was a Got a job as a production assistant. So I was the guy fetching coffee and getting lunch orders and stuff like that. Super not glamorous, but actually I had a lot of fun doing it and uh, worked my way up in that industry over the course of about 17 years and spent, you know, got to, got to work all over the world uh, and ended up as a showrunner and series producer in television production, which basically means that I was overseeing the full episodic uh, and series wide production of shows for networks like Discovery Family of Networks, any family of networks, that kind of stuff. And so multi-million dollar budgeted productions uh, and um, ended up uh, towards the end of that career, uh, getting nominated for a couple of Emmy Awards. Didn't actually win the trophy or else, you know, we're on Zoom right now, but it would definitely be uh, <laughs> if people could see me, they would understand when I say it would definitely be sitting on the shelf behind me if I had won won a trophy. I didn't bring it home, but I'm obviously super proud of the fact that I was nominated nonetheless. Well, I mean, nominated is a, is a term that's, you know, just almost as good. Plus, if it was me, I just have the Emmy sitting in my seat. And then maybe somewhere <laughs> off camera. Right. So, yeah, I, I feel you. <laughs> yeah, you got to that. promote that. Well, and I like I, I like to throw in that it's two time. Right. Oh, yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't a fluke. No, you lost twice. Right. It wasn't like a it wasn't a one hit wonder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I lost twice. Exactly. Exactly. Even, I mean, if you think about the amount of people that could have been in, the, what is it, six that they do when they nominate someone? Is that uh, in each category? It depends. It's usually between four and six. Okay. Meaning, but out of the whole world. Yeah. 
that's a small subset. So that's like winning yeah. by itself in my mind. Yeah. And then who won out of those four or six? I mean, it's really just slicing hairs at that point because it's the best of the best. So you were the cream of the crop, right. at least is how I view it. Right. Right. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. I mean, you know, definitely super honored uh, to have, to have received those. The, the nomination itself is for sure a recognition. And I think that's why people, you know, you hear that term used Emmy nominated uh, is a, is a common term you hear uh, when talking about an accomplishment in somebody's biology. So uh, funnily enough, I, you know, I, I've definitely battled a little bit of imposter syndrome as I'm sure a lot of other people do. And uh, I actually had somebody basically a friend basically yell at me to tell me that I had to include those Emmy nominations in my bio and it had to be on my website and I had to be comfortable saying it to people um, that that was uh, something that I was just going to have to get over because I was an idiot for not mentioning it. I agree with them. <laughs> but uh, my, my biggest accolade, I can say I'm a four time Microsoft MVP, which is probably the least known, least cool MVP that you could be. Um, but because I teach Excel, Obviously, it's something worth mentioning because Microsoft gives out the award, but but it took me a while to for sure. You know, I don't like bragging about myself. It seems like you don't like doing that yourself, but you got to put that. I mean, Emmy nominated. That's something everyone's going to know, you know what that yeah. means, at least. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. So, yeah, so I so I got over that. I got over that uh, imposter syndrome and now I'm I'm comfortable uh, talking about the the fact that I've been Emmy been nominated for a couple of Emmy awards. And uh, basically I, I got to a point in that career where uh, for both personal and per, for professional reasons, I wanted to make a change, be a little bit more stable. I'm in New York. I'm from New York, uh, from the Hudson Valley area. Uh, and I wanted to to spend a little bit more time at home. Out of that 17-year career, I was gone typically about six months out of every year. So I was probably gone about nine years out of that 17-year career. So it's a lot of travel. And uh, a lot of missed uh, time with friends and family, so I wanted to wanted to reclaim some of that time and spend a little bit more time here in the Hudson Valley and travel less. I also saw a huge opportunity to bring the skill set uh, that I developed over the course of that career to bear for businesses, and specifically to help businesses improve the way they communicate with the communities that they seek to serve. And so uh, in December, uh, after about three years uh, working as an entrepreneur uh, and in the, uh, in, the, in the local production space, uh, I launched a program or a process that I call Legendeering that's specifically designed to help businesses grow audience and community around their brands and, and really transform uh, their brands from just a business into a brand that matters. That sounds cool. And I imagine you do that with also helping with video, extracting, you know, their story and putting on video in a bit in the best way possible. Cause I know a lot of people make poor videos, uh, myself included, or struggle to even get themselves on camera. Yeah. And it's really, um, so, I mean, obviously the focus is on video. That's, that's sort of our primary mode of communication, uh, as a business that we employ for our clients. You know, we are primarily a video production company, but we do also produce associated media that goes along with that video content. And the focus is on really about improving the messaging and the communication between the business and the audience. Um, and that's one of the places where people really tend to go wrong and where my background in episodic uh, television production really comes in into play. 
one of the things, uh, the way I like to summarize it, right, is this with a lot of businesses, the communications that you see from them are essentially, if you boil down the messaging, right, if you distill it down, you get down to it. And really what they're saying to people is, here's what I sell. Give me your money. Yes. And that's an insane way to talk to people. And look how great I am. Yeah. Is another right. add on. Right. But it's, it's, it's an insane way to talk to people, right? You would never, ever walk up to somebody like I would never. if I walked up to you and I said, hey, how you doing? I'm Tom. I own Talix Media. We do video content for businesses. I'm going to make you a commercial. Give me $5,000. Yeah. I'd be like, why are you talking to me? Yeah. And a lot of times these are people whose emails have been given to them with the hope that they'll use it for good. And, you know, they then, you know, tone deafly put out something that that doesn't serve them. And I think that's what yeah. your main point is, is. It comes across very disingenuous, uh, very not personal. And that's the kind of thing they were hoping to actually do, but they don't realize they're not doing that. Yeah. Well, and at the end of the day, your public facing communications should be framed in a way that you would talk to someone, for example, at like a networking event. Right. So the best networkers are the ones that walk up to people at networking events and don't just launch into a diatribe about what they do, but they ask questions, right? And they are genuinely not, they don't just ask because that's the right thing to do. They are genuinely interested in learning about the people they're talking to and creating relationships with those people, right? And that's exactly what your content should be doing. Your public facing content should be a handshake and a hello. How are you? What do you do and how can I add value to your business or your life, right? That's what it should be. Not, here's what I do. Here's what I sell. Give me your money. Yeah. I think it's a Dale Carnegie thing about the genuine appreciation. And the genuine part is really the difficult part because you can't have it be fake. So you need to actually start caring about other people, not just in words, but you got to change your mindset so that you're actually caring about others. So that's, I mean, that's part of why I, I, I say part of why I do this podcast. I, a lot of times the, the why I did it evolves and I act like I planned any of this in advance, but it helps with a lot of these things. Like for example, showing genuine interest in someone, if I'm interviewing somebody, well, clearly I got to care about what they're saying. And so, for example, I don't know what category you were nominated for in an Emmy. I'd like to know that. And I didn't know if it was mostly documentaries and reality TV shows. Those are the two questions I had just related to the to the past experience you were mentioning. Sure. So uh, it was a combination of uh, reality programming and uh, documentary series. Um, and uh, the categories I was nominated in, I'd have to I honestly I have to look up the press release to be sure. But it was like special class series was one of them. They were both for the same series. It was a series I was working on called Her Big Idea, which was a series about that highlighted female entrepreneurs in New York City and sort of told the stories of how they built their businesses. So that was the project it was for. And I, I, I genuinely have to go back and look. One was a special category and the other one, special series category. And oh God, I can't think of the other one. Yeah, I can't remember what the other category was. That's okay. Was it something you had to attend or did you get invited? 
Yeah, I wasn't able to attend. Oh, okay. I was actually on a I was on a I was on a shoot for another project. Uh so I watched on my laptop in a hotel room with a uh, with a with a beer and finished that beer off when when we didn't win in either of the categories. What was your thought on percentage chance of winning? I mean, you know, it was real. <laughs> I I kind of went into it with no and this is sort of like a general expectation I have, right? Is is I approach situations with, I try to approach situations without expectation, right? I always aim for and hope for the best possible outcome, but I try not to hold that as an expectation, right? Which means that when I am inevitably often come out of a situation without having realized that best possible outcome. I'm I'm not sort of overwhelmed with disappointment and I'm able to sort of pick myself up and and move forward a little bit more quickly I think right I I found that that works for me I totally agree cuz I'm in the exact same boat I need to cuz there used to be a time in my life where basically that Emmy would be in my hand. And then once they announced that it's not me, it's like taken out of my hand. It's like they're they're I'm fighting to let it go, but I never had it, you know? And I think that's a lot of what that is, is like, if you mentally already think you have it, some people would call that po- positive manifestation or whatever, but I agree. There's a difference between uh, expectations and hopes and making sure that you keep your expectations in line with, so I just try to have no expectations because then I'm never, I'm always cool. You know, it's like, well, I am where I was before this did or didn't happen. So I love that outlook, but it'd be cool if you won, obviously. I'm oh, sure yeah. you, you fantasized about the. Uh, oh, I was, I was bummed. Like, don't get me wrong. It's not like I was like, I was like, huh. You know, I was like, oh, man, that would have been really cool. Yeah. But, you know, it just wasn't in the card, you know, that year in those categories. It wasn't in the cards. Like, who knows? Who knows what the future holds? Right. Like there's no there's nothing to say that I uh, I I won't ultimately end up winning an Emmy Award. Right. So, yeah, I was surprised. So you can put your podcast on IMDb, which I've done. You'll be listed on it once you're once I release the episode. Who knows? Maybe there'll be an Emmy in uh, in podcasting at some point. You could win somehow, right? Something along those lines. Because there's also a video aspect, and they're adding new new categories to things like that. So, yeah, you never know. Well, and and who knows? Like of the of the you know, legendeering is all built around producing branded episodic content for businesses. But it's specifically that content is designed to deliver value to an audience, right? So it is kind of very much in line with a lot of the sort of branded content that you see that's out now. Uh, You know, for example, like uh, last year, Neutrogena Studios, right? Neutrogena, the soap company, mm-hmm. yep. The soap company has a has a studio. Oh, um, they opened a. They created a, a division, right? That was in charge of creating branded original content, and they produced a documentary film and and put it out. They're doing like a Red Bull thing. Well, yeah, it's a little different. <laughs> it's a of. little different, um, but but not dissimilar. You're right. It's definitely not dissimilar. In fact, like I talk about when I talk about content marketing and examples of really good content marketing, I talk about Red Bull a lot because I think they have, there's two things they've done incredibly well, right? One, they've recognized and honed in on who their ideal audience is, and they've done a very good job of providing content that that audience wants, right? And the other is that they have trusted in that investment 
and mm-hmm. continued to invest in it over time. And they have spent incredible amounts of money to create free content for their audience, right? And it's all it's all based on, uh, you know, content marketing generally is all based on uh, what social psychologists call the rule of reciprocation, right? Which is you cannot take without giving in return and is essentially what that rule yeah. boils down to. And in sales, you hear about reciprocity, right? Uh, a lot of people, anybody you know, listening to this who's in sales, I'm I'm sure has used the word reciprocity at some point, right? But it's it's the idea that you you lead with value, right? You deliver value first, and by branding that content to your business, you create opportunity for the audience to return that value to you, right? And and that's what Red Bull has done so well. Like if you watch their content, there's nobody drinking Red Bulls, right? It's not about the product. It's about what the audience wants and needs to see. And uh, one of my prior guests said that it's also, it pays for itself, their whole marketing, even though they spend so much, the, I don't know if it's the intangibles or tangibles that they get from it. They don't have to, I mean, you don't see those Red Bulls give you wings commercials anymore because they don't need to do that stuff. They have a whole, to, I guess what Neutrogena was doing, they have a whole studio. They've, they've created a whole brand of just content and yeah, most of it's their logo being on things like a plane or a whatever, but, you mm-hmm. know, subtly reminding you of who, who's making it, but, but putting themselves as the leaders in this space so that to your point, you know, when you're wondering if you drink monster or Red Bull, maybe you'll lean towards Red Bull because they showed you some cool BMX things or whatever, <laughs> whatever the, uh, well, they're, yeah, they're, I mean, essentially they're signing, like they're signing the card, right? So like, they're giving you a gift. The gift is the content that you want to see. Right. And with that gift, there's a card and Red Bull is signing the card. Right. So they're saying by branding it, by putting their logo on things, by putting it on the wing of a plane or on the parachute or on the helmet. Right. What they're saying is, here you go. We know you guys want this. We know you guys want to see this. We know you guys appreciate this and value this content. So here you go. We made it for you. You're welcome. Signed Red Bull. Mm -hmm. Do you personally have any good examples of when you've miserably failed at um at advertising for someone else or creating something that you thought would be connecting with with um those but maybe you came across tone deaf in the in the realm of failure discussions i'm just curious if you've had any uh standout ones where you're like oh there's gonna be an amazing campaign and then you realize it it was totally off the mark or or maybe didn't do what you'd hoped you know, I think fortunately, I don't have anything that has like completely exploded in my face in terms of like content creation, right? I don't have, um, I don't have anything where I like, it, and and actually, I was with a colleague. Uh, we were going back for in research for a project we're working on. Uh, we were going through and finding some examples of bad content, and there's some some real bad commercial content out there. And I, I fortunately have not been tone deaf uh, in any of mine uh, in that way. I mean, I believe me, I have failed in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm not trying to hold myself up and we can talk about oh, of course, some of those things for sure. But I've been, I've been fortunate enough because really at its core, and I, here's why I think I haven't had that happen, right? Because my job as I see it is not to, not to tell the the business that I'm working with or the organization that I'm helping create content for, my job is not to tell them what their message should be. It's to help them discover it in some cases, and then to help them tell the 
tell a story that allows that messaging to resonate with the audience, right? That creates opportunity for the audience to identify with that message. And so I do that very intentionally in my approach. And often what I'll do is I'll sit down with a client and one of the first sort of discovery sessions that we go through is literally boiling down their mission, their goal, or the core value that they want to represent in that content down to a word or a couple of word phrase, right? And then building the content around that phrase or that word to make sure that it is it is it is laser focused on delivering on that mission or that value. So so that's I think that's how I've avoided that trap mm-hmm. because it's not I, I was that kid, that really annoying kid that always asked why. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like Same. my parents I drove my parents nuts. Right. Because everything was, why do they do it that way? Why do they do it like that? Why do they, why that? Why that? Why that? Why that? Right. And I have not lost that (laughs) as an adult. So I still ask why. Right. And I have, I have clients say to me, or I have, you know, people I talk to say, well, I really want to use drone footage. Right. I actually had this happen with a guy who was like a branch manager of a, of a local credit union, Uh, like first meeting with him and I got introduced to him. They were like, Oh, Tom. And this was like literally the first networking event I went to when I like started my business. Right. So about three years ago, um, I went to this networking event. I got introduced to this guy who was a branch manager and he was telling me about this, this plan he had to do this, this mainly drone video commercial for his, his bank. And I, so I stood there and I listened to him and I was just like, okay, so why drone footage? And he just looked at me and was like, cause it's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, I was like, okay. I mean, I don't disagree. Like you can get some amazing shots with a drone. I'm not disagreeing with the fact that it is like, it is awesome looking, but, but why use it? What is it doing for a bank? It's an interesting choice. Right. Right. And I was like, I asked him, I was like, is it because you want to show proximity to the community? There's like a geographical reason where it makes sense. And he was like, no, 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 it just looks cool. We're not really near like Main Street or anything. Yeah. There's like nothing around the building. And I was like, and I, so I just told him flat out, I was like, I don't think you should use drone footage. I don't think that's, I don't think. But he's like, I bought a drone. What am I going to do with this drone? (laughs) He's like, no, he's like, he's like, ah. He's like, well, do you even have a drone? And I was like, no, I don't have a drone. And he was like, oh, well, whatever. And he still doesn't even, he won't talk to me. I see him at events. He still won't even talk to me. Have you seen a drone commercial yet? They, they never did it. They never uh-huh. did it. But He's just droning on and on about it at networking <laughs> events. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was just, it was one of those things. Like I always, and I'm not afraid to ask that question to my clients either. Like, I want to know why. If we're going to do something, it has to be intentional. Right. It yeah. has to serve a purpose. Otherwise, you shouldn't be doing it. I was that annoying guy at work, too, because I've worked in corporate America for 15 years. And there's a lot of times when they tell you to do something and you're like, why are we doing it like this? Because this does not seem like the best way to do it. Also, I've got a, a bunch of other ways that I think would work better. But sometimes, especially if it's your boss, uh, they just say, well, it doesn't matter. Drone video is what it is. <laughs> you know, and you don't get to, uh, you know, right. Get to find out the why, but yeah, whenever you can have, the more you can understand why you're doing something in general, 
but certainly as a business, to your point, uh, it's super important. And I know I probably miss the mark a lot and I'm trying to improve a lot of my messaging because, you know, I don't know what I'm doing either. So I'm figuring out as I go along how that works. And so I think it's important stuff that you're doing and a lot of businesses need it because they're too lost in their own thing, their own operations and what they do to your point, like it comes across as, well, let's, let's show the world what we're doing, not let's invite the world into something and, you know, make more of a, an impactful relationship with them. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it's, I, I think the thing that a lot of, I mean, look, I know this because it's the trap. It's the mistake that I made. Right. I mean, we want to talk about fails, like the biggest fail, single fail I, I had failure. I had as an entrepreneur was thinking I had to figure everything out on my own, right? Thinking that successful entrepreneurs are the ones that figure everything out on their own that can do everything, right? And I I realized earlier this year or earlier last year, I should say, now that we're in 2022, but in 2021, I realized, uh, you know, a few years, two years deep into being an entrepreneur, I realized I was completely wrong. I had it 100% backwards, right? The entrepreneurs that, that never end up growing beyond being a solopreneur, or in some cases, the entrepreneurs who fail are the ones that try to do everything on their own, right? The ones who succeed are the ones that ask for help, right? And the ones that recognize their weak points and then find people who are better than they are at those things and bring them in to execute for them, right? So and trust them too, because it's hard to give up a lot of that trust. Right. And and part of, I think part of giving up that trust is accepting, like, look, if you're an entrepreneur, your business is your baby, right? It's your child, right? And, and if it's your first or your second or your third, if you're a serial entrepreneur, it's your baby, right? Like it's your baby, whether it's the first time or the third time around, it's still your baby, right? And the thing you have to accept is that no one is ever going to love your baby as much as you do. And no parent doesn't have a babysitter at some point. Right. <laughs> right. 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 Well, and and like, let's go a step further. Right. Mm -hmm. We've all seen babies that we were like, the baby's not that cute. I'm, I'm frequently like that. Yeah, go ahead. Bro. <laughs> but to the parent, right. <laughs> to the mom or dad, that baby is the most beautiful thing they've ever seen in the world. Right. So like, you have to accept that that you are seeing that baby, right? That baby is something to you that it is not to anyone else and it never will be, right? So so recognize that, accept that, and then and then that will help you manage your expectations when you bring other people in. Because I think what happens a lot of times is entrepreneurs try to bring somebody in and they're like, but they don't care as much as I do. It's like, yeah, they're not gonna. They're just not gonna. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like- yeah. That's not their whole world. It's it's their job, right? So it's different. And you just have to accept that and acknowledge that. Yeah, the sad reality is too, you can't possibly care about everything as much as you are doing. So at some point, you got to give up some of the things. I think once you do enough things, I'm not sure you can talk more about the failure and how you specifically messed up or which things you faltered on. But I know I've, I am doing mostly everything myself. And now I know which things I shouldn't be doing, like my SEO and web stuff or whatever the things are like, not my uh, sweet spot. But even getting to the point where you feel comfortable giving up can be can take a while. 
but you realized yeah by doing it all wrong is that what i'm hearing yeah i mean i realized by by trying to do everything myself to the point that i wasn't even asking for help right like i i did not um come up in a traditional business uh environment and because uh, the entertainment industry is by and large a freelance industry. So I was always kind of like for most, the vast majority of my professional life, I've been uh, essentially an independent contractor. Right. So, so I was, uh, I did not come up in a traditional business uh, environment. I did not study business in school. And because of, by virtue of circumstance, I was never exposed really to mentorship as a, as an idea in your professional life. Right. I didn't really know it was a thing. I knew, I knew it existed, but I didn't know it was a thing that I needed. Right. I had never met someone who really became a mentor to me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that if you, that the, the, the reason that that was most likely is that a lot of people who have mentors have mentors because they've sought out mentorship, right? Yeah. Not because they sat around waiting for it to come to them. I just kind of like, seriously, not even kidding. This is like a completely idiotic way to think in hindsight, but here's what I was thinking. I thought that people who had mentors got lucky and found a mentor and it clicked, right? I didn't realize that they went out looking for it. Oh, it's the hero's journey. You know, you find Yoda and then Yoda leads you there. And, you know, it's not like you went out to look for him. It's, I mean, if you're into uh, film, I'm sure you know the hero arc and everything like that. Oh, yeah. But usually you don't seek out the mentor. They just happen to show up. So it makes sense. Exactly. So I didn't know that it was something to go look for. Right. And I also didn't know that in a lot of cases, not only is it something that people actively seek out, it's something that people invest in. Right. It's something Mm -hmm. that people pay for. It is a service. And it's more obvious now, but back 20 years ago or something before people were, you could find, I don't know, life coaches online, a dime a dozen. No offense to all the life coaches who I will and have interviewed, but uh, point is now people know that mentorship is important. I think it's becoming more broadly accepted, but back in the day when you'd have to do some real networking to find one, uh, it wasn't as obvious that that is something you could do, or even that someone would, would want to do, you know, Yeah. either for pay or not. Some, some are even generous enough to just give it away because they, they're so successful. They just like seeing their you know what they've learned be used by others but whether you're you know paying for a high quality uh, coach or just getting a mentor who happens to be in your field and and takes a shine to you but you've you do got to seek it out um it's not something that'll happen without you actively engaging in it and it can be humbling when you're asking for that kind of help so i'm sure that that probably was part of it too but it's easy to think you can do everything yeah, it's it's an easy, easy, easy trap to fall into, right? And then to also have that kind of mistaken belief that uh, asking for help is a sign of failure, and it's actually the opposite, right? It's a sign of strength, right? It is not asking for help, asking for support, seeking out, you know, folks to fill your gaps in your knowledge and your skill set, right? Is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of good leadership right? That's what good leaders do. Good leaders don't do everything, right? They hire the right 
teams to execute on the vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they know what they're good at and what they're not. And they know how to fill yeah. those gaps for sure, because it's easy to have a blind spot that you don't fill, but the best leaders will find someone who can either challenge them in whatever that area is, or just, you know, is a superstar in that department in order to, to, to do the thing they can't do. And, but sometimes in order to recognize what you can and can't do, you have to try it yourself. Other times people are are smart enough where they're like, I just know I can't do that thing. So, so they right. identify it that way. But for me, I kind of got to know how hard something is. Like for example, editing podcast episodes, it's a pain. So when I eventually outsource that at some point, I'll at least know the level of quality and also like what I expect from somebody. Sometimes I have to do it. Other times I don't, I know for for instance, I'm just bad at like sales and stuff like that. So I don't mind uh, leaning on other folks for, for help with stuff like that. So it's, it's important to know your, your strengths and weaknesses and then fill that. But I think it's an important point because a lot of people out of fear of looking like a failure to your point, they won't ask for help. And that just more solidifies the fact that they probably won't succeed <laughs> in that thing, which is funny. Cause like uh, I talk a lot about how fear of failure typically is like a self-fulfilling prophecy that we end up not doing things just because we're scared of it. Even though if we just remove that fear and worry, we could maybe achieve the thing, which is such a weird thing to, to battle with, you know, internally. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those things there. It's like a, it's a cliche truism, but it, but it holds water. Right. And that is that the only way to guarantee that you will not accomplish a goal is to not try. That's the only way to guarantee that you won't accomplish it. And that's the only my true definition of failure. I like to throw the word failure on a lot, but really the truest definition is giving up on something that you shouldn't give up on. There are things you should right. give up on if it's a bad idea or whatever, but if it's something that you shouldn't and aren't doing your best at when you know you could, that would be probably what I would consider most to most likely the the definition of failure. Cause for the most part, I just look at things as, as learning events or mistakes or whatever. I don't think of things as failures. I'm trying to kind of take the sting out of the word with this podcast. A lot of people get like, rep- uh, like physical repulsion from the word. Uh, Cause they're like, right. Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't like the word failure. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's a, it's a great word or a great thing to, to be, but it's, necessary to get comfortable with it in order to get too successful. And I haven't gotten to successful either. I just know from all the self-help books I've read that I got to get comfortable with it. So I figured I'd start there. And if I became successful in this way, in any way related to being the number one failure, that's hilarious to me. So it doesn't, it doesn't make sense, but at the very least sharing other people's stories and what they've seen and failed at, I think is important because a lot of times we just Everyone's showing their best side and no one wants to, uh, you know, admit that things get tough, especially once they've succeeded because they don't have to anymore. You know, they can just pretend like they uh, that they're so smart that they made it through or they're blessed, whatever it is. A lot of people don't like to, once they've hit a certain measure of success, talk about the more difficult times. So I appreciate you. Right. At least being on here to to talk about some of that stuff, because I know it's part of the journey. Yeah. I mean, look, failure is, and you hear it all the time. Like you talked about, like you see it in self-help books, you hear it from motivational speakers all the time. Like failure is a learning opportunity, right? 
every time you don't succeed at something, it's an opportunity to learn how to do it better so that next time you have a, a higher chance of succeeding, right? But the key to it is you have to consistently try, right? Mm -hmm. the, like you said, the only way to fail, truly fail is to give up, right? If you keep trying, keep iterating, keep refining, keep improving, keep learning from your mistakes, you will eventually accomplish your goals, right? But you have to keep trying. That's the, that's the secret sauce, right? That, that, that makes it possible, right? I mean, like, look, let's just be super transparent, right? Um, I am, I created legendering as a process in December, right? Mm -hmm. So I have this new process. I've just signed my first client to it, right? So I've created this new process. I believe that this process is going to change the way businesses communicate with the communities that they seek to serve. I believe it is the future of how businesses and brands build community around their organizations, right? And so I reached out, I have, I have reached out to other people, right? I'm doing another podcast interview tomorrow morning, right? I reached out to you. Mm -hmm. uh, we met on Clubhouse, right? But I reached out to you yep. and made it pretty clear that I was interested in being a guest on your podcast, right? And I did it because I wanted to be able to provide some value for your audience, right? And I want to talk about this process that I've created and tell as many people as I can about it because I believe it can be transformative, right? Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, for me as a business, the value is not in the information, right? The value is in the execution. So I'm happy to teach people about this all day long, yeah. right? To explain to them how it works because for the DIYers, they're always just going to try to DIY it and that's fine, right? I would rather they did that as a better mode of communication rather than using a poor mode of communication, right? Mm -hmm. But ultimately the value for me as a business in it is when I explain it to people and they appreciate it, they turn around and say, okay, great. I love it, but I don't have time to do it. Can you do it for me? What does that look like? And the other benefit of not just going on podcasts, <clears throat> but also just networking related to figuring out your thing is just, you get to explain it more and, mm -hmm. and drill down your message as to what, is the best way to describe it. And a lot of times it's taken me many iterations, many networking events where I'm standing up introducing myself and saying who I am back before COVID when you were doing in-person networking, you know, uh, I'd be iterating, how am I going to say it? Cause well, for me, sometimes people fall asleep halfway through the word Excel because people don't, it's not a sexy topic. So uh, trying to figure out better ways to, you know, say what I do. Uh, and that's where the failure guy thing came about. Um, actually, I just started making up businesses and, and being someone else just for fun. So I just say I'm the world's number one failure and I wouldn't really even have a business or anything. I just have a card that said that. And I would just to intrigue people because I was like, no one is caring as much about the other thing, you know. So I just like testing things out. So I wanted to be like I, I've mentioned it maybe as a guest on another podcast. I don't know if I've said it here, but I want to be like the guy in New York with the, the trench coat full of watches. But instead I've got like business cards, I'll be any, whoever you want me to be at the moment. Oh, oh you need a life coach. Here's my life coach business card, whatever it is. Uh, because I 
I have ADHD, so I like doing all sorts of things, but I really got to focus on the one thing that makes me money, which is the Excel thing. So, but either way, getting, getting through a lot of messaging it and saying it over and over, it makes, so you, you drill down your own message, which is to your point, like part of what you're trying to figure out is how to uh, get messaging. Correct. Right. 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 Absolutely. And, and I think like, you know, and I reached out to, and I'm appearing on a bunch of podcasts and I'm doing some public speaking and things like that around legendeering and, and I'm doing it for a couple of reasons. One, because it's going to help me hone that messaging, right? Over time, I will, I will learn what works better, right? And be able to really drill down on that messaging and get it super crystal clear so that people really can kind of wrap their heads around stuff, right? Um, but then the other side of it too is because of what I what legendeering can do for businesses and what I believe it it does, and and part of the sort of core tenet of the process is leading with value, right? I want to tell people about it, describe it to people as much as possible because some people will start doing it on their own, will like try to implement it and will start changing the way they communicate with their their audience and their community. And, and that's a good thing, right? That's a positive impact that I can have just by talking about it. And so to me, that is embodying what this process is, right? That's embodying the values that I have as a business and leading mm -hmm. with value, right? Um, so that's, I mean, that's what it's about. Like, that's why I reached out to you is, is I know you have this podcast, you have an audience. I've talked to you. I know you're a smart guy. You're eloquent. I really like the, the structure of it and the idea behind the podcast. I think it's brilliant. Well, thank you. The idea of talking about failure as a vehicle to find success, right? Because that's exactly how it works. And, and yeah, so I wanted to come and try to provide some value to your audience. Right. And so that's why I reached out, but, but yeah, I mean, like it, again, the only way to guarantee that I'm not going to get uh, invited to be a guest on your podcast or any other podcast is to not ask. And to be honest, I've got, I've got a, a matchmaking thing on online for podcasters and guests. I think I've got a hundred unread messages on there that I just haven't looked at. And so you jumped the line past all of them just because we've been hanging out in clubhouse rooms and stuff. And just because I'm lazy, I guess, or because this podcast is like secondary to my business. It doesn't I don't make any I'm like an unpaid intern on my own project here with this right. podcast, basically. So so I don't mind having people who I, I know are going to provide value and bring, you know, a certain amount of at least information that might be useful to the listeners. I don't always know who I'm leaving behind by not having gone through all that stuff. But that's, you know, kind of like the universe leading me wherever it is in this kind of thing. But I do want to hear. So you said the the Talix, the media company, the, the brand name started out as a business with you and, and a friend back in the day, and it didn't work out. You said you were in your 20s making some dumb mistakes. This, this might have been before we got on the recording. I didn't know if you wanted right. to, to share that story yeah. and what happened there. Yeah, absolutely. So so basically. Uh, in 2006, uh, a buddy of mine and I had an idea for a business. And really what this is all about uh, is a failure of execution, right? And I think ultimately, probably the business was not going to succeed anyway, but we didn't even try, right? We failed to execute completely. So what happened was we had this idea for a business and essentially what it was, um, was 
I wanted to start, I came from an entertainment background. And so this buddy of mine and I wanted to start essentially what would have been the first internet-based broadcast network was the idea. Mm -hmm. But the idea was not just not to be a broadcast network that was filled with original content, but the idea was to build it as a broadcast network that was via the internet broadcasting other people's content, right? So, so regular television, essentially, right? And this is like 2005 is when YouTube came out. Is that right? 2000, yeah. Well, the uh, 2008, I think, was when YouTube came out. Okay. So you guys were um, ahead of the game, a lot of the video online stuff. We were ahead of YouTube. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think, I think it was either 2007 or 2008. We basically, we had this idea and we just didn't do anything with it. We had some meetings and like a couple of like dumb guys in their early 20s, uh, we we failed to execute. We didn't do anything with it. And instead of actually coming up with like a business plan or seeking out some guidance on how to implement something like this, we came up with a name for the business, but didn't actually do anything with it. Right. And then I think in like 2007, I think it was 2007. It might've been 2008 Hulu launched. And, uh, and I was like, wow, that was our idea essentially. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's very likely that our idea would have ended up looking something like what Hulu looked like when it launched. Um, yeah. And that was before they, they didn't get bought by Comcast a lot later. Right. So it was probably just a nobody. This was when it was just a website with a membership portal. Yeah, exactly. So it would have looked something like what Hulu was when it launched was basically what the idea was. And so like the failure of execution theoretically, you know, cost us both a lot of money. Yes. Right. Like if we had executed on that idea and been successful with it, it would have made both of us millions of dollars for sure. No question. But you didn't. So what point did you give up? Was it trying to find people finding content? It was honestly, we didn't even really know how to start. And, and, and the reason we failed is again, cause we didn't ask for help. Yep. We just kind of, we got busy, like life got in the way and we were sort of like, we don't really know where to start. We like, we're just kind of spinning our wheels and we had ideas and we're kind of sketching out what it might look like, but we didn't ever actually like reach out to anyone, set meetings, you know, we just failed to execute. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like I've, I've got like 50 to 70 domains that I own. A bunch of them are just ideas, kind of like what you're saying, where I'm like, oh, well, it's available and this thing would be cool if I made it. And then who knows, years later, I see someone make something similar. I'm like, ah, well, if I wasn't an idiot and also spent some time actually doing some stuff or even with my own actual business, there's a lot of things you can look back at and go, oh, man, I didn't know I had. Right the most traffic I was ever going to have back then. And I didn't use it. Now I have like a very small percentage of that. So I wish I had capitalized on it. You know, there's a lot of things where you learn in retrospect that, that you, you could have done better, but what you're saying even seems like a big undertaking. So I could easily see giving up on it. If, uh, if you guys are just kind of, you know, halfway in, so to speak. Oh yeah. It was a big idea. Right. But rather than sort of, you know, coming up with a reasoned approach and breaking it down into bite-sized chunks and like ticking one task off the list at a time. Right. We just sort of looked at this mountain 
mm-hmm. right? This behemoth of an idea that we had and just kind of went, I don't even know where to start. Right. It's a, it's a very common thing. And I, yeah. I, I feel that way a lot, even with my own business, there's a million things you can do. Uh, every mm-hmm. business, I mean, like SEO, social media, there's a lot of different facets of things, you know, that you can get lost into. And if you don't ask for help from people who know it uh, and think you can do everything, you're going to have a bad time. You know, it's gonna, or at least more difficult than you need to. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially nowadays. Yeah. And now I, I feel I feel fortunate in that I, I, I have found myself, you know, years later in a similar situation with a new business idea, with a new business, with a new process that I've created legendeering. And I'm not going to let that, I'm not going to make the same mistake twice, right? This one, I will not fail to launch. And the good thing is, even if it seems like, I mean, just with podcasting, it seems like everybody's got a podcast now. I'm sure it seems like a lot of people have video content and they've got it nailed down, but there's plenty of companies that are way behind the curve that can use your help. Just like I thought Excel would not even be software that people still use now. I thought there'd be something that took over. I mean, Google Sheets kind of, but you know, I didn't think it'd be as uh, ubiquitous in like business, um, corporate America, so to speak still, because I started like uh, 11 years ago or whatever. I just think thought technology would, you know, that would be one of the ones that would fall by the wayside and something else would come through, but certain things stick and certain don't, but either way, video content, that's going to be here for the long haul. As far as I can tell. Yeah. I mean, it's not going anywhere getting weirder, even VR and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. And I think, you know, it's one of those things often people get, I think they get overwhelmed when you think about, you see, you know, sort so say, uh, take a podcast that has a million weekly downloads, right? Like if you look at that as somebody who's thinking about starting a podcast, you're going to look at that and go, man, there's no way I'm ever going to hit a million weekly, weekly downloads. And so what's the next step? The next step is like, eh, is it really worth it? Right. Even if the podcast is like, is a plan, like a, you have a plan to monetize it and you see it as a revenue generator for you, you know, like you don't have to make a million weekly downloads to make money off of a podcast, right? You Mm -hmm. don't actually need as big an audience as you think you need. What you need is an engaged audience, right? And a loyal, engaged audience, right? And how do you build that audience? You build that audience by leading with value, right? And in similar to like a podcast, you create episodic content that's based around a format so you can set expectations, right? And then meet those expectations week after week. And if you think about it in your personal life, how mm-hmm. you feel about people that you have expectations of and who meet those expectations, you trust them over time, right? You grow to trust those people. And so that's what you do. You create content that develops trust with your audience, right? And then because of that trust you've built, your audience will help you grow because they will uh, go out and evangelize for your business or your brand or your content, right? Mm -hmm. They will advocate for you. They will refer you to people and you will grow, right? All you have to do is lead with value and build trust. Yes. And, and to your point about the, the download metrics and things to anybody out there, who's going to start a podcast, realize it's a, it, 
you you will not be impressed with the downloads uh, at first and for a long time. So I and I think if memory serves to be in the top five percent of podcasts, you only need five hundred and thirty six downloads in the first seven days after the release of an episode. So meaning, uh, and the top one percent is like three thousand. And if you've got twenty six downloads in the first week after you release a episode, you're in the top fifty percent. So it's insanely low. If you're looking at like YouTube metrics or any other metrics, like the podcasting metrics are so different, uh, but you do get that relationship that's much more, uh, I guess, personal because you're mm-hmm. spending hours either talking directly to the person or having them listen to you. So it's a different kind of relationship you're forming, but it takes a long time. And for the first year of my podcast, I was uh, still having one download days, you know, and then it started gaining more traction but you know a lot of times it's just putting out the content and so yeah that's what i focus on like you were saying with the low expectations i i focus on my goal is to put out more episodes hopefully they're well received and people download it but i can't control that that's kind of out of my sphere of influence so i can influence how many i make or how many i record or how good the content is that i'm releasing so i try to keep to the things i can control and then hope that you know things go well just like you're saying high hopes hope i win the emmy but you know i'm gonna expect to to not even be nominated you know kind of thing and so i think it's a, it's important and there's just so many different ways other people interact with with uh companies or with people it's interesting to find what people like most because i'm finding it hard now to listen to podcasts because i'm doing so much editing of my own i'm sick of listening to my own voice so many times but also you know it's just uh it's it's interesting when you feel like you're already late to something but you don't realize how many people are are just now getting on board there's so many people i talk to and they're like how do i listen to a podcast and i'm like oh okay so it's not as ubiquitous as i thought you know because when you're knee deep in it it can feel like oh, you're late to the game or whatever it is. And so uh, I always encourage people to do podcasting because, well, first of all, why not? I don't view it as competition. There's like 2.7 million podcasts. Uh, it's not a zero-sum game. I feel like everybody can always help each other out. But it's it's an interesting media format. And I got to use more of my video. Like your video looks awesome right now. I'm hoping that whoever's listening will eventually see more reels or something at some point where they get to see you because um, then they'll see that quality that you're bringing to the table, even on just a, a meeting like this. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is how I show up on every zoom call I'm on. Um, and I, and I'll, I'll tell everybody why. Okay. So um <laughs> There's, there's, there's a couple of reasons. One, obviously I own a video production company. So Mm -hmm. like when I get on zoom, I'm on video, it's good for business, right. To show up looking like I know how to make somebody look good on video. Right. Yes. So like, so that's one, but the other side of it is something called the halo effect. Right. And so the halo effect is actually why first impressions do matter right? And why book covers do matter, Mm -hmm. right? And the reason they, the reason things like that matter, and the reason why I show up looking the best I can, you know, I mean, I don't have a lot to work with uh, Hmm. in the, in the face area. Some people would disagree, but, Um, but, (laughs) but, but, you know, I try to make my office look really appealing. This is real. This is not a virtual background. This is actually my office. This is where I do, where I work every day. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I, I do my best to put my best foot forward on video because the halo effect says, right. And this is, this is, has been studied. It's found to have been true over and over and over again, that if someone sees right. Or perceives that you do one thing well, they will automatically assume that you do other things equally well. Right. And the trans, like the way that sort of translates to first impressions is if you show up to a meeting, you know, put together well, showing that demonstrating that you've taken time and care and consideration and put thought into how you're showing up to that meeting, instantly the people you're meeting with will look at you and assume that you are a careful, thoughtful person. Right. And then you use that level of care and thought with everything that you do. Right. And not just how you dress for the meeting. Sure. Yeah. Right. So, so it matters. Um, and people, I think I had this conversation earlier today uh, with somebody. We were talking about Zoom fatigue. Right. And I think actually, why a lot of people say they're like Zoomed out or they have Zoom fatigue. Right. And they don't want to get on a Zoom call is because. They've never really put a lot of effort into actually trying to make themselves look good on Zoom. They're sort of perpetually disappointed by what they see. And so they just don't want to look at it. That makes sense. I mean, even my, I mean, you can see I'm way too uh, bright. Uh, no one can see this, but I, my, my setup is ridiculous. There's a mirror behind me that you can see a light in. Whereas I see you've got the nice, you probably have a key light or whatever you call it, uh, top left of you or whatever the thing is called. And I see the key, the, key lights over here. I've got a fill light over here. Um, I see you got and the then nice subtle light in the back because that's that's a good thing to have. I've been told. Yeah, this this yep. this yeah. What, what's called like a rim light or a hair light? I'm bald also, so it's not really a hair light uh, for me. <laughs> yep. It's a hat light. Um, but I've got that light in the background. I've got three lights. Uh, like two behind the cameras, one in the center. And then I've got another light pointing down on them. Um, but again, this is like, you know, I've got like a $300 microphone. I've got uh, a several thousand dollar camera set up. Um, but this is all like, this is equipment that I owned because, yeah, you know, I own a production company. And so it was sort of like, well, I should put it to work for myself. Now, I don't have that expectation for anybody else. Right. And you can hear my dogs in the background. Um, <laughs> I've muted. I muted a few times, but my dog was also getting irate for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. The, the thing about lighting I wanted to mention is so like I got obsessed with it, getting it right because I've made me most of my training is um, me recording the screen. So I hadn't had to show my face or anything on, on camera. So when I did, I was like, I need to learn all the right lighting things. So I bought a ton of different lights. Like you were saying, all the different things. I spent so much time setting it up that that and, and obsessing over buying all the expensive equipment that the video itself isn't even that good. Cause I hated being on camera and I don't like reading a script and all this other stuff, but I was so focused on all the technical aspects that I probably made a bad video content wise because I was too focused on all those things that you already know how to fix almost instantly. Or, you know, when you would set up, you'd, you'd get it all right. The first time I was too busy messing around with a million different lights. That's a, that's a common thing that I come across in. And one of the things that I've, you know, I've, I've done a lot of, in a way, I've done a lot of sort of coaching people through the process of being on camera and learning how to present well on camera. 
and a big part of it is just getting out of your own way. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because like anything else, any sort of public speaking or, or presentation or performance, because it is performative is, is about getting out of your own way. And the, and the people who are the best at it, right. Are the people watch how I tie this back around for you are the people who are not afraid to fail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. They're the people who are not afraid to make mistakes. So like I have a podcast, which I am bound and determined to resurrect. And part of the reason why I'm mentioning it is just to hold myself accountable to that. Right. Mm-hmm. What's the name of it? So we can check how, how long it's been. It's, it's called something good. It's been since August since okay. I've put out an episode. So it's been a minute. Mm-hmm. But uh, in fact, the last episode I put out was about the Summer Olympics. Hopefully it was something good. Uh, it was something good. I mean, the, the tagline of the podcast is a bite-sized podcast about anything and everything good, for goodness sake. Yeah. Like and uh, yeah, so it was, uh, it, it, was, it was good. I shared a letter, uh, an open letter that Dan Rather wrote about, oh, now her name is escaping me. I'm the worst at names sometimes. It's okay. Live in the moment. One of the, one of the gymnasts, Carrie Strug, I'm going way back. Cause no, yeah, no, you're going way back. No. One of the most recent gymnasts, oh, she's, I, uh, she's like, she's the gymnast too. And I forget her name. I could have sworn it was Dominique something, but it was, maybe that was no. like four years ago. I'm not up to date for eight I'm, years I'm, ago. I'm going to, I'm going to find it for you. Give me two seconds. I will pull it up. Yeah. Simone Biles. Oh yes. I know that name. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So Basically, Dan Rather wrote an open letter sort of profiling the courage of Simone Biles, uh, sort of famously in uh, during the Olympics last summer, Simone Biles removed herself from one of the phases of competition because she was having some trouble. Uh, I think they call it the wobbles or something like that. Basically, like she was having a hard time, like seeing her landing. She was getting disoriented while she was in midair. Mm-hmm. And you think about the height, the speed the 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 velocity that she's carrying as she's doing these kinds of things if you miss and land on your head or your neck like you can paralyze yourself right and there was actually a russian gymnast who did a vault even though she was having the same kind of problems um that simone biles was dealing with she ended up paralyzing herself and died at, like in her 30s right wow. like 15 years later or something. So it's a, it was a very real, very dangerous thing. And uh, there was sort of. And difficult decision. Yeah. Yeah. Incredibly difficult decision. She's been training her whole life, right. To participate um, at that level, right. On a world stage as the best of the best. And uh, it must've been an incredibly fraught decision for her to make. Right. But because it was such a difficult decision, it was also incredibly courageous. Whether you agreed with it or not, it was a courageous decision. And I, I wanted to highlight that because personally, I thought it was, it was, there was a lot of pushback that mm-hmm. I thought was pretty abhorrent. And it was basically spectators pushing back going, no, no, we want you to perform for us. That's what you're there to do. Right. Yeah. And, and it was, they had dehumanized her to the point that they didn't even see her as someone who had something to risk. It was just about their enjoyment and nothing about what she was giving up or potentially risking for their pleasure. Right. Yeah. And so it was a courageous decision. She gets, there was a huge blowback or even appreciating 
like the difficulty it takes to get to that level and like how much work it is to get to the point where you can then turn down the opportunity to perform at the Olympics to for people who don't do anything in their life to criticize someone like that, which is probably the type of people who are doing that. Um, Oh, exactly. Oh, totally. It was like it was the people who like barely ever get off their couch. Right. Who were who were sitting on their couch complaining about her. Mm-hmm. have back problems wouldn't even t- go on a gym mat yeah 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 can't touch their toes like whatever yeah which is nothing wrong with that but don't don't judge other people if you can't right i like hey look people yeah people have physical limitations you know yes. for sure but she is more dedicated uh and a harder worker than you know i would bet almost any of the people that criticized her right so you know, it, it was just one of those because someone who does that much work wouldn't criticize someone like that because they understand. Right. right. The amount of work it takes. Exactly. Because they understand what it takes. Right. Um, and that's one of the things like so often people are, you know, you see somebody who is exceptionally good at something and there's sort of this assumption that they just were naturally good at it. And it's like even people who have a natural disposition towards mm-hmm. doing something very, very well they still work hard to be the best at it because there are other people that have that same natural disposition. Mm -hmm. So they still have to work hard. It's a different level of like, I do triathlons, right? I did my first Ironman uh, in September and, you know, one of like, dude, I finished nowhere even close to as fast, like not even like literally four hours. It took me four hours longer to do that race than it takes a professional triathlete to do it. Right. Four hours. It would take me whatever amount of time you took you to gain the courage to sign up and then not go. (laughs) If that helps. (laughs) Yeah. But four hours. Right. So nowhere close to like an exceptional performance. Right. I was happy. I finished. I did well for my, you know, for my expectations, but it was nowhere near an exceptional performance. Right. But like those pro triathletes, not only do they have a disposition towards excelling at that kind of endurance sport, they also train like 30 hours a week Mm -hmm. of training. So you imagine like you tell somebody, you know, you're going to criticize them for pulling out of a race because they were afraid about injuring themselves. um, When they have spent like the equivalent of a full-time job every week working out. Yeah. Right. You have no idea what hard work is. They don't want to do it either. They don't want to to stop. Yeah. They don't exactly like Simone Biles didn't want to not participate. Like, are you kidding? Of course she Mm -hmm. wanted to participate. It was a hard, hard decision to make. But again, like it was a courageous decision. I thought it was something good. And so I wanted to talk about it. But that was in August. That was the last episode that I put out. I think you make a good, a good point, though, there, because anybody, whether it's create creative world or whatever it is, you see someone who's, of you know, famous for being online and talking about things or whatever. You don't realize that person who comes across so polished or whatever also either is still struggling with or has struggled with that wondering if they're even worth putting on camera like it's it's like we think they don't have those thoughts but they do from everyone i've talked to who's been a high performing whatever like there's all sorts of self-doubt you just don't see it because it doesn't come across because they've done the work to you know show their best self forward but 
there's plenty of them that don't think they should be talking. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people don't realize that there is that behind the scenes questioning of yourself, even if you're performing at a high level, you know? Yeah. Well, I think like one of the ways where you can really kind of see something like this sort of like, and, and really wrap your head around it. Right. Is with uh, like with bands or musicians, Right. Mm-hmm. If you have a favorite band or a favorite musician, right, I would challenge you to go back and listen to like the first album they put out. Right. And then listen to the most recent album they put out. And you, I guarantee you will hear a dramatic change in how they play together, in the quality of the music they're putting out, because they may have been really good when they started. Mm-hmm. Right. But They've gotten better over time because they've continued to work at it. Everybody is on sort of a a continuum of of achievement, right? Nobody has ever reached the finish line in achieving what they want to achieve, right? Like I have a goal to change the way businesses communicate with the communities that they serve. Mm -hmm. That mission is never going to end. I am never going to get to a point where I sit back and I go, well, Mission accomplished. Wonder what yeah. I should do now. Constant improvement. Is, right. It's is a part continuum. Of the game. Yeah. It's a it's a continuum of achievement. It's a timeline. Right. It is not. It is not a goal you can like check off the list and then move on from. Right. You, yeah. You just reminded me of back in the day in Boston. I had a band that I was in. They needed a bassist. I, I play guitar, but I, and I say play guitar, meaning I've. I know how to play guitar. I don't mean like I started when I was 14. Every other year that I add on is is a year since I started, but it doesn't mean I've I've uh, done much. But we spent eight months writing original music and then we performed at a bar in Boston. And then the keyboardist moved to Montreal like a week later and then we couldn't reform as a band. So we spent so much time writing music and spending time together and getting better, all the behind the scenes stuff for one show which was, it was fun to play the one show. I can always say I was in a band and I've performed, but you know, that felt bad to not have anything to do with all that time you spent doing it. So like, yeah, whether it's creativity, music wise, um, in, in sports competition, whatever it is, there's so much lead up until when you're seeing the person, even that first CD you were talking about versus the newest one, like to get to that first CD, there were so many things that, that needed to happen for that person or that group of people it's uh it's hard to realize and then certainly once it's out in the public and you get to perform and get feedback and things you're going to improve it's just uh it's i like that now mental health is becoming more accepted as a, as a social issue to talk about because a lot of times people think these celebrities and people with um just really good either camera photogenic skills whatever it is just the ability to look and come across as well presented like yourself, for example, right after this, you might go down a bottle of vodka and go crazy. I have no idea what you're doing, but point is like, there's, there's no way to know what's going on behind the scenes unless people are sharing that type of stuff. And a lot of times with people who are famous or reach some sort of success, you just assume everything is peachy when uh, usually it isn't. And I mean, that's seen a lot of times with like suicide of famous celebrities and stuff like that. You think things are, going well and you don't know all the all the problems that they might be masking and things like that so it's important that people take the time so simone biles like doing that is a huge 
um, thing. I mean, it's like a, it's a big step forward in terms of it being acceptable to care about your own mental health versus the thing that you're doing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like, I think, so here's the thing is like people often when people get create content in particular, right. Um, they get focused on or obsess over trying to make everybody happy. Right. And that is like failure in a bottle, right? Mm -hmm. You cannot, it is impossible, not unlikely, not hard, impossible, right. To make everybody happy with the content that you put out. Right. So instead of trying to make everybody happy, what you should do is try to accomplish an achievable goal, right? Something that you can actually strive towards that is possible. And so I think it's important that people, as they create content, whether they're a solopreneur or a large organization, um, they should create content that is authentic to their values, right? And not be afraid to take a stand for what they believe in. Because at the end of the day, especially in the business world, uh, we all make purchasing decisions based on how they feel, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're a homeowner, I bet you, if I were to sit down, like, I don't know, do you, do you, or do you rent or do you own the place where you live? I rent. Okay. Well, either way, right? So far as removed as it can be probably, but go okay. ahead. <laughs> All right. So, so maybe you're not the best example for this, but I'll use myself as an example, right? Sure. So I own, I own my house. And when we were looking around at a, at a house to move to from the house we were in before, for we were in a townhouse before, this is a, a house a little further north from where we were. Um, when we were looking around at houses, we looked at a lot of different places. What we really wanted was space, right? And we wanted a, a, a place that kind of, um, without being too secluded, felt quiet and peaceful and those kinds of things. And we found a really, really good deal on an old house that had a lot of character that was in a nice area that felt like the kind of place we were looking for. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we decided to buy the house. Right. And for myself, and I know for other people, when you talk to them about why they purchased the house that they live in, right. If they own a home, why they purchased the house they live in, it's because it felt like, the place they wanted to call home. It felt like the place they wanted to raise a family. It felt right. Mm -hmm. That's what I was going to use. It felt right. Yeah. And so my argument is, right, that if you are going to make the biggest purchasing decision of your life based on how it feels, mm -hmm. then you make every other purchasing decision based on how it feels, right? So as a business, your goal is not to inundate people with information, right? To beat them over the head with your products and services. Your goal is to make people feel good about working with you, feel mm -hmm. good about supporting your business. And if you can do that, price doesn't matter. Yeah. And competing on price is the downfall of most any small business or freelancer or any kind of thing. You, you should not be uh, lowering your price in order to increase sales. You should be looking at other things like improving your marketing and, and things like that, because you don't want to be fighting for price. You want to be uh, knowing your value and justifying that via your actions and things like that, rather than 
right. go, oh, no, no one's buying, so I must lower my price. No, you should increase the value or, inc- or increase your engagement or whatever the thing is that isn't battling over price. Because, right. uh, yes, people will, um, well, first of all, don't think with your own wallet. So if the price is too high for you, it doesn't mean it's too high for everybody else. But also, you know, frequently we undervalue what we're giving. And you typically, if you're a good business person, you're giving far more value than you're charging. And so getting over that is something I've struggled with, but mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it t- just takes time. So that's why for yeah. a long time I was just giving everything for free, but now, you know, I'm, I'm learning better not to do that. But, uh, but all the things you were saying are, are incredibly important in terms of gaining that trust from whoever is going to be your customer, because yeah. that's what they want. They want to make sure you're not, you know, just in it for a buck and also just, you know, showing the thin veneer of care towards them. They can, they can see that now they get inundated with emails from everybody now. So, you know, right. it, you got to stand out in terms of being genuine and to your point, picking, picking, uh, not everybody, because if you're marketing to everybody, you're marketing to nobody, they say, you know, you've got to pick a target market or, you know, you could say, I like the missing person thing. So like you, you basically create like a missing person poster of your client uh, as descriptive as possible. Like if you lost your kids, you'd tell the cops everything possible to find them. So if right. you do that with your client and can do that, then you can figure out where they would hang out and go find how to reach that customer. But even mm-hmm. understanding who your customer is sometimes can be can be tough for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, for for a lot of people starting out, you hit on something that I think is incredibly important. Um, and, and for a lot of people starting out, they undervalue their time. Right. They undervalue um, what, you know, what they bring to the table. And and it's I think it's incredibly important to remember that if you don't value your time, no one else will. And, and it's not just your current time. It's all the time you spent learning that thing too. So there's years and years of time that you've spent developing this skill. So don't forget that that's part of it too. Not just the amount of time they're asking for you in that moment. Yeah. Have you ever, uh, I, I would recommend anybody try this. It's, it was really interesting I, to me. Have you ever heard of um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's like 10,000 hours uh, mm-hmm. sort of thing, this notion that it takes 10,000 hours, right. To develop expertise in something. Right. Yep. Um, I did the math. I, I had somebody encourage, actually a mentor of mine encouraged uh, a group of us to do the math and figure out roughly rough approximation, right. How many hours we had invested into our professions. Right. And I did the rough math and I'm like over 40,000 hours deep mm-hmm. after 20 years in production, after over 20 years in production, right? 40,000 hours invested. It's a lot. It's four times right? a, a Malcolm Gladwell uh, expert. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. So, so do I have expertise? Absolutely. Right. I've put in the time. I've done the work and I've gained the expertise, right? Is that expertise valuable? Absolutely. We've spent, I mean, I've been in corporate America for 15 years. I don't know if I've hit that 10,000 hour mark, but a lot of times we're talking about working, not just regular 40 hour weeks, or at least when I made my training, I was doing it on my off time. But, uh, but yeah, 
regardless if it's if it's uh, ten to forty thousand, whatever it is, you've done yeah way more than your share of of what you need to get there and well, that you'll never get paid for unless you start baking that into the cost of your services or at least I, i've told the story before but there's a pablo picasso story of of um trying to charge a woman ten thousand dollars for something he drew on a napkin uh and was about to throw away at a coffee shop and she says it took you two seconds to draw that and he's like no it took me a lifetime to draw this and so that's the the at least what I try to bring to it is like, I'm not just selling my current time or my current brain, but all the time and bullshit I had to put up with in order to get to now. And the, you know, all the failures that I had to endure uh, so that you, yeah. whoever the client is can skip all that. Like I would happily have paid myself 15 years ago, thousands of dollars to, to train myself to skip all that stuff. So right. it's easy to forget that kind of stuff when you're in, a sales kind of situation. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yeah. And I, just to be clear, like how I did the math, like I've been in production for a little over 20 years now. I did the math based on a 40 hour work week and I did do 52 weeks a year because let me tell you a 40 hour work week was like a vacation week. Right. I often was working 60 to 80 hours a week. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, especially when I was on location, right. A 12 hour day was a short day. And I spent at least six months on the road uh, out of pretty much every year on average for like 17 years. Mm -hmm. Right. So I did 40 hours a week by 52 weeks out of the year okay. by 20 years. I think my math could have been wrong, which is sad because I'm a math guy. So like 40 hours a week for 52 weeks is 2,080 hours. Just so you know. Right. So 40 times 52. So five years of that would get you 10,000. And to your point, right. you're doing much more than 40 hours a week. Am I a few thousand off potentially? <laughs> yeah. And I might yeah. even be underestimating being honest, right? That's certainly possible. But the people you're dealing with probably have four hours of uh, experience or whatever. Right. <laughs> and, right. But yeah, so, but that's how I got to that number is, you know, is 20 years in production. Um, I've put in about 40,000 hours into my, into my profession. It's, it's funny because also part of it is like you're trying to improve things so that it takes you less time so hopefully the later years will be less hours because you've become more efficient in what you're doing which or i'll just continue biting off more well yeah that that's another point but i mean i guess with excel i try to automate everything so it's like more like the the later i am in my career the 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 more i'm trying to do less work because i'm automating it you know because i'm finding out how to do it easier so like your your first five years were probably way more learning stuff. You know what I mean? Like learning focus because you were doing it all the wrong way. And then yeah. you're perfecting it for a long period of time too. So like you've got a wide range of experience from, and sometimes it can be difficult to remember what it was like when you knew nothing and trying to explain to someone who is back at that point, you know, what it was like yeah. then and like put yourself in that spot again. So I'm sure yeah. that's part of it too. Yeah. Luckily, luckily I, because of by, by virtue of what I do, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, 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 uh, important that I am good at communicating, uh, in a way that people can understand. So generally speaking, I'm pretty good at finding a way to explain just about anything to anybody in a way that they can understand and relate to. Um, but again, that's like one of the things that I've spent you know, thousands of hours learning how to do well.
Um, so, Absolutely. you know, I, I don't come out of the gate with like a natural ability to do that. It's something that I've honed over time. And yeah, so I mean, you know, it's, it's, a you know, it's a constant process. It's constant evolution. I am still learning, mm-hmm. right. I am still refining, uh, like I'm still honing. I just launched legendeering, you know, in, yeah. in December, 20 years deep in, in this, in this industry, right. In this profession is when I finally launched my process for what I think and what I believe uh, communications should and will be going forward. And so, you know, I mean, it's obviously a consistent, you know, learning process. I'm never going to be done. Right. I think, I think the day anybody says they're done learning is the, is the day they should hang up whatever they're doing. Yeah. Or it's the day they start dying. Cause uh, I mean, lifelong learning is something I think that's incredibly important. Absolutely. Just so I don't take up forever. And, and since we're, (laughs) pretty long. Is there anything else on failure that you want to mention before we get into the two final questions that are a little bit more forward looking? Just thoughts on the subject that you want to convey before we we got to that. Yeah, I mean, I think uh the one thing that I would just always reiterate to people is fear of failure is most likely the single thing that is holding you back the most in life. So if you conquer your fear of failing, you will find success. The thing I like to say is to use fear as fuel. So when you feel that fear, realize you're probably going in the right direction. You're stepping out of your comfort zone and try to view it as a good thing rather than something to retract you away from it. Try to try to realize it's it's a positive sign unless it's yeah. like danger, fight or flight type of fear. But typically... We're talking about, you know, uh, business endeavors and stuff, but yes, absolutely. Fear of failure. Yeah, exactly. But it's, it's, it's natural. You know, it's, it's something that's not easy to fight. So it's important to remind people, you know, things aren't going to feel right when you're doing stuff that either no one's done before or is creative in a way that is out of your comfort zone, you know? Right. If you're afraid of failing at something, that's the single best indication to you that it's worth doing. Yeah. And also, you're probably not, it's not, not going to be as bad as you think. Oh, yeah. It frequently build it up so much in our heads and it's nothing. It never is. Yeah. Yeah. Which is. Never is. It, you can't experience that unless you do the thing. So do more things is also what I'd say. Uh, I mean, I like, uh, I, I've tried to remember who it was that said it. I'm, I give it to Rivers Cuomo from Weezer. I think he said to write for the trash can or something because he would write hundreds of songs and then mm. he would you know, only pick whatever his favorites, but by writing, by creating anything and then critiquing it, we're a lot better at that than we are at creating things from nothing. So like create anything and then critique it to be better is usually a good starting point because sometimes we get stuck with that blank page and we don't know what to do there. If you put anything, just do a brain dump type of thing, then you can whittle it into something that's, that's better. But a lot of times we just don't start for sure. And, uh, and I think, that's that's a big thing too. Um, being a guest on the show, you get a get out of fail free card, <laughs> which I'm gonna eventually make physical things and send them to people. Who knows? But uh, I'll pretend to hand you one right now, which is a blank okay. thing in my hand. So it's it's there. You go. You got it. Um, so it's just like the Monopoly card, but instead of uh, getting out of jail, you can get out of fail. Uh, your I guess in in a future thing that you haven't done. So like, is there a 
maybe a hobby or a passion or something earlier in life that you it it could have been that company with the the um broadcasting but more like um mine would be stand-up comedy is this typical one i use people are probably sick of hearing me say that but if you didn't have to bomb all the time on stage i would be fine with trying out stand-up comedy but since there's so much failure baked into it i'd probably use my get out of fail free card for that is there something you'd use to pursue that you've avoided because of like the amount of failure that's likely to be involved. Interesting. You know, I kind of like, uh, I kind of like your, your thinking on stand-up comedy and I would probably for my side, I would probably say, uh, um, acting, um, but not stage acting like screen acting. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like, I'm not like, uh, you know, I don't have a deep love for Shakespeare. Um, I'm just not cultured enough, I guess, to really appreciate it. Um, I totally get that. Are you talking about the other side of the camera? Basically you're usually seeing people act. Yeah. You'd like to be on the, on the receiving end of the camera. Yeah. I mean, I think if I got a get out of fail free card and I could just pick a career path. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that would be, that would be the one that I would just, I would, I would go after for sure. So next year, blockbuster hit or whatever it is what kind of movie are you in what are you starring in what's it about hmm is it a comedy is it an action movie (laughs) i you know i think a i think i would really enjoy being in uh being in a drama that has so like some really smart well-timed uh comedy right or like an action movie that has some really smart comedy in it Right. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, like, you know, um, so like, like Deadpool. Right. So like, it's yeah. obviously a superhero action movie, but it's hilarious and totally irreverent. Right. Like that would be a, an amazing kind of project to be a part of for sure. That'd be fun. I think I'd like to play a villain in something that would be, that'd be cool. That could be cool. Cause then you get to made look like a badass, you know, without yeah. having to be one. Yeah, I wouldn't mind being like the sidekick, like sort of like comedic relief, sort of in like in Deadpool, the guy who's the bartender, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Who's like Deadpool's friend, who's the guy who's the other. Is it TJ Miller? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first one at least. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think, think that's so. who plays him. Yeah, so like that kind of sidekick, I would have a lot of fun with. That would be a really fun part to play. Is that something you think you'll ever do? I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I. Cause you got connections, right? I imagine. I mean, some theoretically where, yeah, but I, I think it'd be something that, and I honestly, I don't know if I would be good at it. Right. Yeah. Like, um, so it's, I don't know if it's a skill set that I can tap into. Mm-hmm. That's um, why it makes sense. She's a card and for then it. Home. Right. Exactly. And that, that was my thinking was like, I don't know. And I don't know that I'm ever really going to, cause there's a, a huge time commitment to really try to accomplish something like that. Yeah. It's similar to like stand up comedy. Like you have to really grind it out, I think to be successful. If- and uh, so, yeah, I don't know that I'm ever going to have the opportunity to do that, but I, I would, I would take the, I would take the get out of fail free card for that. If I was being honest, I'd probably do it more for like an Iron Man or working out or something. Cause I can't do that. I could maybe bomb on stage a bunch and be okay with myself, but I cannot get myself to work out uh, well enough. So congrats on even finishing one of those. That's <laughs> insane. You. I can't imagine doing a th- one of the things that you do on an Ironman. So uh, yeah, 
props to you for that because that's a big thank accomplishment. you um thanks then the next and uh last question before we find out where people can find you is what's the next big thing you're going to fail at and it sounds like it's going to be legendary at least in terms of figuring out how to how to make that work because it's a two-month-old business it sounds like not i mean not even right so it's a it's a product of you know talix media so it's part of my company it's a it's a process that we apply for folks and there are for sure there have already been some failures uh along the way with legendeering um i did a uh, and i'll just i'll lay it out i did a uh, i did a masterclass uh presentation for it um i did a good build up to it uh was great on the sort of lead up promotion i had 100 people sign up i had 50 people show up for the masterclass i had 50 people stay through the masterclass that masterclass led to me closing the first sale uh, for legendeering. I don't hear a lot of failure here, but I get, ask me how many people I followed up with out of, out of those hundred people that signed up zero. Yeah. I dropped the ball, dropped it. Like didn't even, my hands weren't even close to it. Mm-hmm. I didn't bobble it. Yep. And the nice warm leads, right? It wasn't up in the air. It was like, my, you know, like it, it was, it was like somebody threw it and I just mm-hmm. kind of like watched it go by. And I just, I completely dropped the ball on following up with people after that event. So lesson learned. And the next time, cause I will do that presentation again. And the mm-hmm. next time I do that presentation, I will not drop that ball. I will not fail to follow up. I guarantee, I promise you, mm-hmm. I left opportunity on the table by not following up with people. Promise. I, I do that all the time. So yeah. anyone who signs up for my course, the first uh, five videos are free. And then if they do that and don't buy the course, do I follow up with them? No. Also, I've got a 14,000 people mailing list that I do not mail and I get beat up for all the time for this. So I'm starting to do that now. I'm, yeah. I'm getting into that, into the idea of it because uh, it's been a while since I reached out, but there's a lot of stuff. Similarly, I can identify with like being like, oh man, I'm leaving money on the table or I'm leaving opportunity to help people, whatever the, the thing may be. It's like, I'm not taking advantage of something that other people would really either a take advantage of and like do the right thing with, or would kill to have, I mean, right. You know, yeah. people take a long time to build up mailing lists and things like that. And to just not use it is ridiculous or even to, yep. I didn't have an ad on this podcast for most of it. I started on episode 26. I started putting an ad for my own business. Right. It's like, what is wrong with me? You know? So, <laughs> But that's how you learn. Yeah, exactly. So like, you know, but it's, it's, I will a hundred percent, you know, I will hundred percent own that I have already had some failures with legendeering and I'm sure I will have more, but I will not fail at, and I already haven't, right. Cause I've mm-hmm. already sold the first yeah. client, right. So like we've already sold the first plan, um, we're executing on it. So it's a real thing. Money has changed hands. It exists. Yeah. Right. So I am not going to fail at this, creating this process and I'm not going to ultimately fail at rolling it out on a large scale, but along the way, I for sure, I'm going to have a few more failures before, you know, before we get to, um, you know, the point that I want to get it to. So, you know, it's, it's, it's natural, but yeah, like I've already had a failure with it. And it's, yeah. and it's not even two months old yet. So the good thing though, is that next time when you do email all those people in the next one, you'll, you'll go, Oh yeah. It's cause I didn't do it the first time that I 
remember to. So like, I always like to appreciate the thing that I did wrong that led me to the right answer later. Yeah. Yeah. So where can people go to find you these days? Where, where can they go to best connect with you and, and check out the legendary thing or anything else you're working on? Sure. So you can always visit my website, which is just talexmedia.com, T-A-L-E-X-M-E-D-I-A.com. Um, and you can find me or my business on kind of all social media by searching at Talex Media LLC. Um, that's at T-A-L-E-X-M-E-D-I-A-L-L-C. Right. So you can find me any of those two places. Uh, and then where we met was obviously on Clubhouse. So every Wednesday morning at 9.30 a.m. Eastern, I co-host a Clubhouse room uh, with my buddy Dominic uh, for Motivation Champs. And uh, he was in episode 32 on this podcast, if anyone wants to go listen to it. OK, perfect. Perfect. And uh, and yeah, so we so we host that room every Wednesday and uh, it's called Clubhouse publishing, podcasting, and social media is the name of the room. And it's every Wednesday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern time on Clubhouse. So those are the places you can find me. And if you'll indulge me, I want to leave the audience with one one last little piece of of value. I will happily indulge you. Okay, cool. So I want to, I mentioned the rule of reciprocation earlier and I talked a little bit about it, but I want to, I want to sort of paint a clear picture for folks so they understand what I'm talking about and they start to see how value driven content that they produce for their audience can really trigger this response, right? So I want to talk about, uh, I'll use it by, by talking about a situation that I would venture to guess everybody listening has at some point or another found themselves in, right? And that is a common situation. You're out to dinner with a friend, right? And you get towards the end of the meal. They get their wallet out first and they say, dinner's on me, right? So you have that happen. And then you start doing the polite dance, right? So you start dancing back and forth and you go, oh, come on, you don't have to do that. And they say, no, no, seriously, I insist. And then you say, well, at least let me cover the tip or let me cover the drinks, right? And you go back and forth a few times and then you make two decisions, and you say them out loud. And the first decision you make is to accept that gift. And you say, okay, fine, right? You give in, you capitulate, you accept that gift. You say, okay, fine. And then you make another decision and you say it out loud right after the first decision. And you say, but the next one is on me, right? And Mm -hmm. that is the rule of reciprocation in play, right? You are offering to return the value to them. You can't help yourself. You don't even have to think about it before you make the offer. You don't go and check your account balance to make sure you can afford to buy dinner for them, right? You don't care what restaurant it's going to be or what yeah. it's going to cost. You just know that you're going to buy them dinner in return, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's what you do. So what value-driven content right, allows you to do is deliver value to your audience, right? Give them a gift of value, buy them dinner. Mm-hmm. Right. And by branding it to your business, you provide them the opportunity to return the favor, to reciprocate and buy you dinner in return. Right. That's what value driven content does. And that's what legendeering is built off of. Right. So I would encourage everyone as you approach creating content for your business, think about who your audience is and how you can provide value to them and focus on that creating value for your audience and delivering it to them with no 
strings attached and they will return the favor. I love that. That's a great uh, way of putting it. It just reminded me of Big Lebowski when the dude goes to grab the bill as if he can pay. He knows he can't pay, but he goes to pretend to do it. And uh, that's what it reminded me of because a lot of people like to pretend as if they're they're happy to pay for it, but they're not. But to your point, like, yeah, whenever you're you're giving someone value and especially when it's genuine, like they're not just trying to lord over you the fact that they can pay for the meal or whatever, you know, when it's when it's a reciprocal kind of a nature and it feels like someone you can trust and would want to have another dinner with, especially. I mean, that's that's part of it, because a lot of times, you know, if, if a company is giving you a gift, you might not want that gift anyways. So you might not feel that reciprocation. But if you're marketing right. to the right people, like you're saying, yeah, that feeling strong. And and if you're giving good content, they want to find a way of making that right. They feel like there's an imbalance in the world. Right. So um, and 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 it triggers a, it, it relies on a universal human truth that is a building block of civilized society, right? The rule mm-hmm. of reciprocation is a building block of civilized society. It's the reason why when we're little kids, our parents teach us to say thank you when someone gives us something. It's because you cannot take without giving in return, right? And so you give them gratitude by saying thank you, right? You show your appreciation by saying thank you. It's why when you're walking down a hallway or down the street and a stranger says hi to you, mm-hmm. you say hi back because you cannot take without giving in return. You can't help yourself. It's baked into all of us, right? So all I'm thinking, really what I'm getting down to is create value for your audience and treat them like the people they are. Yeah. And I think the book, uh, The Go-Giver, if anyone's read it, uh, is a fantastic one because it's it's all about that. And if you're, if you are just giving, it will come back. It's not like you have to <laughs> ask as much for it because people will feel it. So I think that's a, it's a wonderful point. And yeah. I just wanted to thank you for, for a taking so much time because I know we went over and I rescheduled it and everything and all the good things that happen with failure guy. But um, I appreciate you for coming on and, and being vulnerable and sharing your story. Cause it's uh it's super important. And, uh, and I wish you all the success with the legendary. I think despite the failures you will encounter, I'm sure it'll all be just fabulous. But it's been my pleasure, Ben. I I really appreciate it, uh, and and uh, you know have have enjoyed every minute of the conversation. So thanks so much for having me. Right back at you. Would you like to be more efficient, productive, and confident in your work at the office? Over 750 million people worldwide use Excel, yet it's still a misunderstood and frequently misused tool. That's why I created Excel Exposure, so you can work smarter and not harder. The Excel Essentials course gives you over five hours of in-depth video lessons. Plus, it comes along with my master workbook, which has every function, shortcut, and all the examples to follow along. Investopedia actually included my course in their list of six best online Excel classes of 2021, saying it's best for visual learners. As someone who's an expert in failure, I can certainly teach you and your team how to avoid spreadsheet failures and create bulletproof Excel documents. Use the coupon code FAILURE for 20% off of the lifetime access price. Visit ExcelExposure.com for more information and also my existing award-winning free training. Thanks for joining me on the Failure Guy podcast. If you enjoyed it, feel free to tell somebody. And don't forget, always try to fail it till you nail it. Till next time.